welcome to episode 37 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your whimsical and zenial host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Rides. Season three is almost done. We only have three episodes left. And in order to help put off the inevitable ending, I am going to cover one episode from the 1968 Hawaii 5 and one episode from the 2010 Hawaii 5 in this episode. So we have season three, episode 22, The Bomber and Mrs. Maroney. And from the third season of the 2010 Hawaii 5 we have episode 17, Pa'ani. I'm using a new mic, courtesy of my friend Shan, and it's supposed to help reduce ambient noises. And we're putting it to the test today because we I'm actually recording during a wind advisory. So we'll see if you can hear how the wind blows. Also, if I'm lucky, we'll get something really good blown in the yard from the neighborhood. So grab your Aloha shirts. Let's go to Hawaii. He's still up there with a gun. How long now? Five or six minutes since he shot through the door. What does he want? We don't know, but the rest of the floor has been cleared. Who's in there with him? Chin, Jenny, Officer Kyle, and some little old lady. We've got a man in an office across the street with high-powered binoculars who can see in. But nobody can get in. Looks that way. That's all he said to you? Nothing else? No. No, nothing. Danny! You better hear this. She saw the guy. Talk to him. He asked for you, Mr. Williams. I told him where your office was. He was so polite. I didn't know. It's all right, Diane. And get the details. I'll be upstairs. Season 3, Episode 22, The Bomber and Mrs. Maroney. Air date February 24th, 1971. Directed by Paul Stanley. This is his ninth of 19 episodes. Written by Gerald Ludwig. This is his ninth of 12 episodes. And Eric Bersavisi. This is his ninth of 12 episodes. An inmate by the name of Collins is granted his parole for being a good boy in prison. He then proceeds to go to the 5-0 offices looking for Danny. At the office, Mrs. Maroney is complaining to Jin Ho that her children want to force her to move back to Wisconsin, and she wants to know if there is anything he can do to stop it. Collins asks Jenny if Danny is in, but he's not. Jenny asks what Collins needs to speak with him about and if there's anything she can help him with. But Collins responds by first getting agitated and then getting physical with Jenny, drawing the attention of Chin Ho. Collins whips out a gun and proceeds to take the three of them, along with Officer Kyle, who happens to walk in at the wrong time, hostage. He then fires the gun to make sure everyone knows he's there. Chin Ho attempts to get Collins to talk to him about his reasons for being so rude, but Collins only says that he owes Danny something. Chin Ho fibs that Danny is off-island when he is, in fact, just arriving. The info girl tells Danny and Kono that Collins was looking for him. Danny and Kono, along with HPD in riot gear, set up outside the 5-0 offices. Inside, the first niggle of dissent amongst the hostages begins with Mrs. Maroney putting her hands down despite Collins telling her to keep them up. He threatens her, but, son... She's old and tired, and you're going to have to deal. Collins relents and lets her keep her hands down. Collins uses Chin Ho as a mouthpiece, letting him stick his head out the door to yell down the hallway to Kono. He asks when Danny is due back, and Kono says a couple of hours to buy them time, but Collins demands he be there in one hour. Thanks to the mirror set up in the hallway, Danny is able to get a look at Collins, but he doesn't recognize him. While Collins moves the hostages into Steve's office, Danny talks to Steve, who's in Chicago. He tells Danny to pull whatever building blueprints he can find in order to come up with another way into the offices. Otherwise, they're going to have to hit it head on. The observation post across the street lets Danny know that Collins has moved the hostages. Danny puts in an order for a sniper. 
Mrs. Maroney demands to sit down while Collins roots in his bag full of dynamite. Collins relents and lets everyone sit. While Collins is distracted, Chin Ho secretly calls down to the info desk, leaving the phone discreetly off the hook. The info girl alerts Danny, who dismantles the receiver so they can listen without being heard. Danny then splices Steve into the call so he can stay informed. Collins thinks that the silence outside means that they're not taking him seriously. Chin Ho again tries to get Collins to talk about what's going on, but Collins only wants to see Danny. He then orders Officer Kyle to go to the window and step out onto the balcony. Collins shoots Kyle, sending him tumbling over the side to the ground below. Chin Ho is blinded by the blast from the revolver when he tries to stop him. The good news is that Officer Kyle made it to surgery and he'll live. The bad news is that the sniper Danny acquired is going to have to make a perfect shot on Collins, otherwise he'll be able to retaliate and kill everyone in the room. Which Collins seems to be keen on anyway as he rigs the outer office door with dynamite. Anyone opens the door uninvited, they'll all go up which they are a minute away from doing because Danny is ready to rush the door with the riot cops. Kono stops him at the last second with the explosive news from the observation post. With that plan out, Danny orders the bomb squad in emergency services. While Mrs. Maroney gives Collins hell about shooting Kyle and blinding Chin Ho and rigging the door and being a in-general prick, Danny and Kono have a look at the building plans and decide to send Danny into one of the vents with a rifle. However, it narrows too much near the office and he can't get close enough to take out Collins. With no other options left and time running out, Danny informs Steve that he's going in per Collins' request, despite Steve's objections. Danny has no other choice. While everyone holds their breath, Danny enters the office. This is very much a Danny episode, considering Collins is gunning for Danny to begin with, and Steve is off-island, so Danny is handling a bulk of this hostage situation. However, the true star of this episode is Mrs. Minnie Leona Maroney, played by Hope Summers. She is absolutely amazing. Because from the very get-go, it is absolutely abundantly clear that she has, and pardon my language, no fucks left to give. Her field of fucks is barren. Because when we first meet her, she's complaining to Shin Ho that her children want to send her back to Wisconsin to go live in an old lady's home, and she absolutely doesn't want to do that. And she wants to know what he can do to stop it, because even, as she says, criminals have a right to extradition, and she feels she's entitled to that right. So we already have this idea that she is a headstrong woman when Collins comes into the office. Collins, we've seen go in front of the warden and be granted his parole. From what the warden says, he's been a model prisoner. So when when we first see him released, there's actually no real indication that he's plotting revenge on Danny. We just see that he's been a very good boy in prison and they've chosen to parole him. And then he goes to the 5-0 offices. He's very polite to the info girl in the lobby and she directs him to the second floor where the 5-0 offices are. It's when he gets inside and he asks Jenny where Danny is and Danny's not there and she tries to help him saying, oh, can somebody else help you? What do you need Danny for? Maybe I can help. And he loses his shit. And he gets very agitated and aggressive and he physically attacks Ginny, which is an automatic death sentence in my book because Ginny is sweet and she's lovely and she is harmless. And how dare you put your hands on her? From that moment on, he meant nothing to me. Anyway, 
Collins takes hostages, and unfortunately for Officer Kyle, he's having an incredibly garbage day because he comes in at the wrong time and he's also taken hostage. And Collins takes Chinho and Kyle's guns, and they're standing there, lined up against the smaller offices that Kono and Chinho and Danny use alongside the reception area with their hands up. Well, Mrs. Maroney just isn't feeling it. Put your hands back up. I will not. They're tired. Do as he says. When you get to be my age, you'll be pretty tired of doing everything everybody says. Please. No, I won't. You sure are a nasty old lady. Okay, keep him down. Nobody else. What I love about that is she truly is not impressed by this dude. This guy is, is holding a revolver. He's taking two officers hostage as well as two women. He's clearly an aggressive person. And she looks at him and goes, uh, yeah, no, I'm t my arms are tired. I'm old. You're not going to treat me this way. I wish to have such balls in my elder years. I wish to have such balls now. Truly. She's amazing. We also see... In that moment, Collins is willing to pick his battles somewhat because he relents and lets her keep her arms down. I mean, he calls her a nasty old woman, but I don't think he truly sees her as much of a threat at that point. She's just an irritation. And if it shuts her up, he'll let her put her hands down. And this is pretty much the attitude she carries throughout the episode is that you're going to boss me, but only so much. So... At this point, we don't know exactly why Collins wants to talk to Danny. We do get the idea that he absolutely wants to kill him because when they mention Danny, he kind of like, he's like, I just, he, he says that he owes him something. And there's this vision that's transposed over his face of Danny, like in blackness, begging for his life and then being shot. You can't hear anything. There's no audio. It's in slow motion. It's very dramatic. So we know that he he's looking for vengeance and he's looking to do Danny a murder, but we don't know why. And for the majority of the episode, you do not know what is provoking this vengeance tour because we don't recognize Collins. We don't recognize his name. So we're not sure. And it kind of plays out like maybe this is a prior case that we never saw, that it's a past vengeance thing that we don't know anything about because we know that 5-0 puts criminals away that we don't see them put them away. So we're kind of as lost as Danny, especially when Danny gets there and he sees Collins because they have a mirror set up down the hallway so they can look at the door because it must be around a corner. When Chin Ho sticks his head out asking Kono when Danny is going to be back because that's a pretty clever fib on Chin Ho's part to act like Danny's off island to buy them some time. Danny gets a glimpse of Collins because he opens the door a little bit wider so he can yell and Danny doesn't recognize him. So what's great is that we know this guy has it in for Danny. Danny doesn't remember him or recognize him, and we, so we don't know why. So that little bit of mystery goes through most of the episode. Our next move is that Kono is able to buy them an hour that they use, and then Danny gets a hold of Steve, who is in Chicago. So what's great, because this is a very tense episode, and Mrs. Maroney serves as the tension breaks. Her, her dissent and her resistance and her attitude helps serve to break that tension. But one of the great tension makers is that Steve, who is usually our hero in charge, is physically unable to intervene in this. He is in Chicago. 
He is a very long flight away from Honolulu. We're talking like 14 hours. So not only is he physically not there, he is physically incapable of getting there in time. So he's doing all of his McGarrity remotely. So it adds a level of frustration because Steve can't be there to take charge like he wants to and protect his team like he wants to. So it's it's very much a Danny episode. We don't have a whole lot of Steve in that because Danny's in charge. And it, it really does not having Steve there. It's noticeable, but it's noticeable in the way that it creates tension, not in the way that you're constantly wondering where McGarrett is. Collins moves everybody into Steve's office. This provides several important steps for the for the rest of the episode. One, he moves them into a location where the at the observation post, they have a better shot at him when it comes to not only seeing him, but also getting a shot on him for a sniper, which Danny orders. He orders one of the better snipers on HPD to come up and hopefully take a shot. We also get the next level of descent from Mrs. Maroney because she insists on sitting down. She's an old woman. She doesn't need to stand through this hostage situation. Young man, I don't know about these other folks, but I want to sit down. Did you hear me? Yeah, okay, sit down. All of you, make yourselves comfortable. And Collins is somewhat distracted when she's asking, making this request because he's rooting through a bag. Here's the next thing we see. He's rooting through his bag full of dynamite. Charming. And it's not like, you know, a few sticks. It's like a lot. There's a lot in there. So we know that not only does he have three guns, he also has a lot of dynamite. Now, the 5-0 team and the HBD response team outside only knows about the weapons because obviously they can count. They have no idea about the dynamite yet. So Collins actually relents and lets everybody sit down. Everybody get comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. While he's distracted, Chin Ho is sitting on the corner of Steve's desk and he turns behind him and he takes the phone off the hook a little bit. He's got it angled. So it kind of looks like it's hung up, but it's not. And he dials the information desk so they can hear. And the little information girl clues Danny in and Danny dismantles the receiver so he can hear. For people who are of a certain age, we understand what Danny is doing. For people who are much younger, there were no mute buttons on phones in 1971. They had hold buttons, but not mute buttons. So you had to improvise. And Danny takes apart the receiver in order to do that. And then later they get somebody from the telephone company to splice lines so they're able to listen to the call while they're up on the second floor, as well as splicing Steve in from Chicago so he can listen in real time to everything that's happening. So this is Chin Ho's way of getting the information out to Danny and Kono. Brilliant on Chin Ho's part. Can we discuss how brilliant this is? Chin Ho doesn't get enough credit. Brilliant. So Collins ends up putting that dynamite to good use and he rigs the door to the outer office. So if anybody comes busting in, everyone will know. Everybody in like a mile radius will know because he's got like multiple sticks of dynamite strapped to the door and it's rigged with a grenade so that the grenade is going to be the trigger. So if they open the door, if the door kicks open, the string is set up so it'll pull the pin pin will detonate the dynamite. We're talking about a big boom here. It's a little overkill in my opinion, but nobody asked me. 
In the meantime, Collins is becoming a little bit more agitated and unhinged as we go on because he's waiting for Danny. And he decides that because there's no noise outside, nobody's trying to come in the door, nobody's talking to him. He's decided that they're not taking him seriously. And so he decides to take the next step. And that is by having Officer Kyle go out onto the balcony and shooting him. So he falls over. And so he falls two stories to the ground, lands on the lawn. Chin Ho takes that opportunity to rush Collins. Collins turns and fires the gun. But where Chin Ho is at, the bullet misses him, but he gets the the flash burn from the discharge in the eyes. If you've ever seen the A-Team episode, I think it's first season, Beast in the Belly of a Boeing, uh, same thing happens to Murdoch. Anyway, that's what happens to Chin Ho. Ginny is losing her mind, and Mrs. Maroney is just absolutely appalled by this. And she lets Collins know, and it's amazing, because while Ginny is tending to Chin Ho, because she, he's been blinded, Mrs. Maroney is reading Collins the riot act about his behavior. Now, just let me tell you something. You're a very sick young man. Do you know that? Why, back home we had you locked up faster than you could say, Billy. Shut up. But that's dynamite. You bet it is, old lady. Nobody tries to break in here without knocking. Bang. It's bad enough that you went and shot that poor man. And now you're going to blow the rest of us all to pieces. What's the matter with you? None of your business. She is so appalled by this man's behavior. She's going to let him know exactly what she thinks. And Collins again shows some restraint because he just calls her a nasty woman. But the fact that Mrs. Maroney is basically matching audacity for audacity is fabulous. So after the officer Kyle shooting, Danny is like, yeah, we need to, to rush this door. And Kono catches him at the last minute that we can't. The door's rigged. We're running out of time. Finally, the architect shows up with the blueprints because I don't know if I've made this plain. The 5-0 offices are supposedly located in Iolani Palace, which is the only palace on American soil. And it's still there today. It was remodeled with a ventilation system, a new ventilation system. So there's a ventilation path that Danny can use to try to get back to Steve's office, but the guy warns him that it narrows, so he might not be able to get there. So Danny goes in with a rifle and he can get close enough that he can hear them, but he really can't see them and he can't, there's no way he can take a shot at Collins from the vent. And one thing is, is that while he's in there, because Mrs. Maroney is, again, reading Collins the Riot Act, Collins is coming back about how she's a nasty woman and reminds him of his mother and how his mother used to yell at him and his brother, Joey. So here's your first hint, what the vengeance plot is. But even then, Danny overhears it, but doesn't put it together. He's too focused on trying to get into a position so he can have a shot at Collins. He can't make it, so he backs out of the vent. They're now running out of time. He has no choice. He's going to have to go in, much to Steve's chagrin. You can't do it, Dano. He's got three hostages in there now. You walk in, he's got four. He doesn't want the other Steve. He wants me. Maybe I can make a deal with him. Dano. He shot Officer Kyle. Wounded Chinho. He's past the point of making deals. He's going all the way. What else can I do? He set a deadline and we know he means what he says. There's no other way. You walk in there, Dano. Odds are that you'll never walk out. If you were in my place, what would you do? Okay. Okay, you're right. Dano, please be careful. 
it's very touching to know how much Steve cares about his team because he doesn't want Danny to go in and advises him not to go in. And Danny says that if he was here, if Steve was here, he would do the same thing that Danny's doing. And Steve kind of relents. And there's really nothing Steve can do to stop him. I mean, he's in Chicago. His superpowers do have some limits. So Danny ultimately has no choice. And he tells Collins he's coming in. So Collins derigs the door so Danny can come in and join the hostage party. Now, as I've said before, I typically do my synopsis. So I end, my synopsis usually ends at like the 25, 30 minute mark, because that's usually when the, the next like twist or next elevation for, towards the climax happens. And same thing for this episode. So it's like 25, 30 minutes in when Danny goes into the office. We still have 20 minutes left of this episode. You get 20 more minutes of tension because now Danny is in the office with the hostages and Collins. So we get the story finally about why Collins is seeking vengeance on Danny and it's Mrs. Maroney who prods him into telling Joey Collins yeah you do remember don't you well I'm his brother Marty I warned him you killed him you murdered my brother Joey Collins brother Marty give me a full rundown on both of them fast Right. It was an accident. Yeah. Now, Joey was just a kid. But to you, man, he was nothing. Just some punk to chase down the street and then shoot in the back. This is a great callback to the first season episode, and they painted daisies on his coffin. So the young man that Danny accidentally killed in that episode, Joey Collins, this is his brother, Marty. And that's why he's going after Danny, because he thinks it's garbage that he was cleared of any murder charges. In a case of worst person making valid points, he does make some valid points about police-involved shootings and how often the cops are not held responsible for it. But we saw that episode, so we know the grand jury clearing Danny has some merit. We saw the whole thing. But Marty is not going to be so forgiving over the death of his little brother. Once Danny realizes that Marty is avenging his brother Joey, we get the flashback of not only Danny killing Joey by shooting the lock and accidentally hitting him through the door, we also get flashbacks to Danny's response to that. And that translates into the present day. We see that Danny is still haunted by Joey's death that it still affects him. And he tries to convey that to Collins, but Collins, of course, thinks that he's just saying that so everybody lives. He doesn't buy it. But we can see that Danny is truly, truly affected by Joey's death. Now, during this whole time, we have this sniper outside across the street trying to get a shot at Collins. And we see he has several close shots, but nothing that he needs because they say they need to, the first time they tell him that he needs to incapacitate him because he's already shot Officer Kyle. So if he is not incapacitated, he will take out the rest of the hostages. When Danny gets in there, it's revealed as part of Collins's plan that he's not only going to kill Danny, he's going to kill everybody because he has a dynamite vest on underneath his Aloha shirt. And he activates it. So they only have 30 minutes. So now we have a new clock. 
And we also have this extra layer of tension in the fact that now the sniper has to do a headshot. He can't risk hitting that vest. So he has to do a kill shot. So every time you see the room from the sniper's point of view, there's that extra spice of tension because is he going to take the shot? Is he going to miss? You have that going on which is great because the closer you get to the end, the less Mrs. Maroney is effective as a tension breaker because now it's just, you're too keyed up. So one of the last things that they try to resolve the situation as peacefully as possible is since now they know who Collins is, they locate his mother and bring her in and they get her to try to talk him out. It doesn't work. It, it really doesn't work. Collins listens to his mother, but then gets incredibly agitated and starts screaming, go away, leave. He just flips his shit, which gives Mrs. Maroney even more ammo and really drives home a point that your mother has already lost one son and she doesn't want to lose two. And this is how you treat her. And this is Collins's breaking point because now he's had enough of Mrs. Maroney and he's going to kill her. But... Danny has one last Hail Mary to avoid this episode ending in a bang. You know what else is pretty explosive? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Collins was played by Mark Jenkins. This is his first of three episodes. He was Dr. James Kildare on Young Dr. Kildare. It was a short-lived series in 1972. It was basically a syndicated reboot of the 1961 series. He also appeared in episodes of Death Valley Days, Then Came Bronson, The FBI, Medical Center, Medical Story, The Man from Atlantis, and Barnaby Jones. He appeared in the movies To Cross the Rubicon, Red-Headed Stranger, The Andromeda Strain, Doctor's Wives, and the Filthy Five, and he was in the TV movie, Alan. As I said, Mrs. Minnie Leona Maroney was played by the beautiful and wonderful Hope Summers. She was Clara Edwards on The Andy Griffith Show and Mayberry RFD. She was Hattie Denton on The Rifleman, and Belinda Catherwood on Hawkins Falls, a television novel. She also appeared in episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Wagon Train, Maverick, Peter Gunn, Dr. Kildare, 77 Sunset Strip, The Untouchables, The Danny Thomas Show, Gunsmoke, My Three Sons, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Phyllis Diller Show, Gomer Pyle USMC, That Girl, Adam 12, Bewitched, Mash, and Little House on the Prairie. She appeared in the movies Evil Town, The Learning Tree, The Shakiest Gun in the West, Rosemary's Baby, Spencer's Mountain, the Couch, Inherit the Wind, and the classic Zero Hour. And she appeared in the TV movies The Flim Flam Man and Death Sentence. Mossman was played by our favorite Douglas Mossman. This is his seventh of 27 episodes. Sergeant Emerson was played by Earl Thompson. This is his second of two episodes. He was also in the episode Uptight. Officer Kyle was played by Vern Hoke. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in By the Numbers. Officer Olina was played by Roland Naao. This is his first of five episodes. He also appeared in an episode of Magnum P.I. as well as in the movie Inferno in Paradise. Corey was played by Clarence Garcia. This is his fourth of eight episodes. Rourke was played by Howard J.K. Isecki. This is his first of seven episodes. He also appeared in episodes of Magnum P.I., Jake and the Fat Man, Raven, The Birds of Paradise, and One West Waikiki. 
Mrs. Collins was played by B. Barrett Davis. This is her only credit. Diane was played by Terry Lee Keiko Olani. This is her only credit. Belle was played by Doug Kaya. This is his only credit. Officer number one was played by Barton McAuliffe. This is his second of six episodes. He was also in King Kamehameha Blues. And officer number two was played by Artie McAuliffe. This is his first of eight episodes. And that is The Bomber and Mrs. Maroney. I love this episode. When I was going through season three to pick my favorite episode, this one was the runner-up. I mean, Over 50 Steel is hands down my favorite, but this is a really, really strong contender. It has a great balance of escalating tension with the tension relief that is Mrs. Maroney to have that strong-willed older woman going up against this young, vengeance-fueled man. It just works so beautifully. You also have the great callback to a season one episode. And it is a Danny-driven episode with Steve off-island. So his involvement is very limited, which adds to the tension. And really, once Danny gets into the office, everything gets dialed up several notches. The tension really goes up. It's just a fabulous episode. I don't often say it, but this is a must-watch. Well, go on, speak up. You know you're busting to tell us, so why don't you do it? Let me get this straight. You're telling me people, they pay good money to get chased around and shot out with a pellet gun? Everything about these guns is real, except for the ammunition they fire. Trust me, those training rounds, they pack more of a punch than you'd think. I'll take your word for it. Hey, you know what? We should come and do one of these tactical simulations sometime. It's fantastic for team building. No, 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 listen, working with you is harrowing enough, okay? I do not need you hunting me for support. No, you're right, it wouldn't be much of a challenge. Vic's name is Scott Davis. Work for Artist Microsystems, a technology firm based out of California. A bunch of executives flew in for a corporate retreat, and they booked out the entire facility for themselves. It's like a nine mil, thrown through. And uh, the powder burns indicate it was fired from close range. Okay. These guys are running around shooting each other with pelicans. This guy gets hit with a real bullet. How does that happen? That's a good question, to which I don't have an answer. And to make things a little more challenging for us, there are no surveillance cameras on the property. That's great. 2010 Hawaii Five O Season 3, Episode 17, Pa'ani. Air date February 18th, 2013, directed by Jeffrey G. Hunt and written by Kyle Harimoto and David Wolkove. Episode title Pa'ani is one of the few Hawaiian words I actually know. It means game. There are two big games happening in this episode. A war game team building exercise, which results in a corpse, and the Pro Bowl, which Steve and Danny are going to. But first, the case. The corpse is Scott Davis, a business exec now sporting a close-range gunshot wound to the head. The most likely suspect is fellow exec Brett Mercer, who ditched the games that morning and booked a flight back to the mainland instead. He claims not to know anything about Davis's death, but the vaguely threatening message he left for Davis while drunk and butthurt doesn't make him look good. Leave it to big boss Neil Redding, played by trained frontman Pat Monahan, to help him out by telling 5-0 that Mercer didn't have the balls to kill anyone. Nice. The timing of the plane ticket purchase does a better job of getting him off the hook, though. 
When the autopsy reveals that Davis took a sedative 12 hours before, it's suspected that he was dosed. This leads Steve and Danny to the La Mariana Tiki Bar and Steve's old friend, Nikki the Kid DeMarco, played by Larry Minetti. He informs them about a gorgeous grifter named Holly, who has a penchant for separating rich men from their money, and says that she zeroed in on Davis at the bar. Isaiah the bouncer has an in with Holly, which he doesn't want to discuss, so he runs right into Nikki's fist. One chat later, Steve and Danny discover that Isaiah didn't tip Holly to Davis. She was working from a different script. Looks like Holly might have been targeting Davis for someone else, which means if they find Holly, they'll find the killer. And if they do it fast enough, 5-0 can make it to the Pro Bowl and Danny will have a shot at meeting Peyton Manning. Typically, I try to pick 2010 Hawaii 5 episodes that have some connection to the original series. This one doesn't really have any. I picked this episode because, one, I like it. I think it's fun. And two, it is the first appearance of Larry Minetti as Nikki the Kid DeMarco, and I absolutely adore this character. Basically, he is a lounge singer that works out of the La Mariana Tiki Bar, and he was a friend of Steve's dad's. And when they first go to meet Nikki... Steve tells Danny, don't say anything, don't ask any questions, don't answer any questions, let me do all of the talking. Nikki immediately hones in on Danny and says, you're not from around here, and Danny's like, oh, I'm from New Jersey, and this launches Nikki into the story of how he got his name. I used to work with a singer from New Jersey way back in the day, a fellow by the name of Francis Albert Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. You worked with Frank Sinatra? Yeah. You know we with Frank Sinatra? I've heard this story once or twice. Yeah, but, but he didn't. July 18, 1965, Frank's playing the Erie Crown Theater in Chicago, and his opening act calls in sick. I'm just a 17-year-old stagehand. But Frank turns to me and he says, You're in, kid. I opened the show, and I killed him. And I've been singing as the kid ever since. That's a great story. <laughs> He's a fabulous character. He really is. And he pops up multiple times throughout the rest of the series. I've seen all of the Nikki DeMarco episodes. Please understand that because I do love Larry Minetti. If you're curious as to why, for those of you who are uninformed, Larry Minetti originated the role of Rick Wright on the 1980 Magnum P.I. series. And because the 2010 Hawaii Five-0 and the 2018 Magnum P.I. share universe, Nikki the Kid DeMarco has popped up in a few episodes of... Magna P.I. because the new Rick Wright bought the La Mariana Tiki Bar. And so that's one of the main sets since like the second season, I think. So this is Nikki's first appearance and it is, it is a gem, especially when he punches Isaiah in the face when he's trying to run away. It's magnificent. But anyway, the episode actually starts with a, the war game and it is, it really, the way it's shot and the way it's presented, it looks like an actual military operation in the Middle East because you have these execs playing the roles of the U.S. soldiers and of the quote-unquote insurgents. And it's not until the very end when they shoot the last guy that he pops up and says that it really hurt because they're using like basically pellet guns. So then we're like, oh, this is a team building exercise. This is a, this is a fun game. That transition is actually really well done as long as you don't think too much about it because you're having people who are role-playing a real-life situation where people are actually dying. If you think too much about that, your brain's going to pop. But whatever, we get a corpse out of it. Scott Davis has been shot in the head and 5-0 is called in to investigate. Now, here's the thing. This is Pro Bowl weekend. 
Danny and Steve have scored tickets from Kamikona, 50-yard line tickets to this Pro Bowl because Danny is like dead set on meeting Peyton Manning. He's a Jets fan, but he loves Peyton Manning. Okay. And Kamikona ends up scoring a third ticket and invites himself along with their bromance date. So all of the Pro Bowl stuff is actually really amusing because later we have an awkward encounter with Steve's girlfriend, Catherine, who is also some sort of a law enforcement agent. I don't remember what she works for. I, I haven't seen all of the episodes. So she comes up with tickets for her and Steve, but Steve's already going with Danny and she's like, no big deal. And we get this thing about how basically Steve, Danny and Catherine are all fans of terrible teams. Steve is a fan of the Washington football team. They're now the commanders. Back then they were the Redskins. Danny is a fan of the Jets and Catherine is a fan of the Cowboys, like terrible teams. I would not admit to being a fan of any of those, but that's just me. Anyway, so we have that going on. Danny's obsession with meeting Peyton Manning. Danny also finds a way to embarrass himself later to Arian Foster because Arian Foster gets involved in the case because he punches somebody out and... Danny takes it upon himself to question him about a catch that cost him a fantasy football championship. I mean, it's so embarrassing and yet so true to life because there are those obsessive fans that do shit like that. Just embarrassing shit like that. So that whole Pro Bowl thing is is actually a lot of fun it going on in the background. As for this war game, it seems like they have a pretty obvious suspect in Brent Mercer because he bailed on the war game and he took a flight out. And when they catch up with him, none of it pans out. The boss, Neil Redding, is not a boss I would want to work for because he seems like King Prick. I was on my way to Beijing to lock up a contract when I got the call about Scott's death. I redirect the flight, only to be told when I land that Brent Mercer is being held as a suspect. So not only is one of my top tier employees dead, but now another is under arrest. I need somebody to tell me what the hell's going on. Okay, with all due respect, Mr. Redding, we're going to ask the questions, all right? Of course. Okay, you are Brent Mercer's boss. You think he's capable of doing something like this? This is a cutthroat business. My people are very competitive with each other. In Brent's case, Scott came in as an intern and he absolutely lapped him. But I hired Brent. I trained him myself. Do I think he's capable of killing Scott? No. Why do you say that? Brent's a great employee, but what he doesn't have is the fire in his belly. I'm no psychologist, but I can tell you that he doesn't have the balls to kill someone. Neil's main concern seems to be with the company because now one of his execs is dead, one of them is being held for murder, and he needs to answer to his board about this. Chin Ho comes in with the the airline ticket because when he bought the airline ticket, he bought the ticket at the hotel room, so that wouldn't have given him enough time to go and kill Scott and come back. So the, the airline ticket does a better job of getting him off the hook than his boss does. And when Neil hears this, he's like, great, this is something I can take to my board. We're having an emergency meeting so I can, you know, assure them that this won't tank the company. And Danny's like, oh, I was going to offer you condolences, but never the fuck you mind. So he seems very cold and callous about this, very businesslike. We get the autopsy done by Max and Max tells Kono that he had a sedative in his system and Kono realizes that he's probably been dosed. And that leads them to the La Mariana where they talk to Nikki. And Nikki's the lounge singer there. And apparently he's got his eyes on everything because he knows who Holly is. He saw Holly with Davis at the bar. He knows that Holly has something going with Isaiah when it comes to her grift. And so when they want to go talk to Isaiah, Isaiah bolts. And Steve and Danny go chasing him. And Nikki cuts him off and punches him in the face and knocks him down. So when they bring him in, they start questioning him. And Nikki gets a little rough. 
But it comes out that, yeah, Isaiah points out marks for Holly, but he didn't point out Davis because he wasn't throwing any cash around the bar. He was just totally plastic. He made him for a lousy mark. Holly took it upon herself to pick him up. So she was working from a different script. So now we have the swerve of Holly was probably working for someone else and targeted him specifically for reasons. We need to find Holly so we can figure all of this out. So they go looking for Holly and they track her phone, find out she was in an altercation at a hotel. And it's a great scene because Chin Ho is in the office tracking the phone and Kono's in the hotel and he's giving her directions and it leads to the security room. And she goes in and has a great conversation with this security guy who is clearly an HPD wannabe. It's a little awkward, but also funny at the same time. And we see that that Holly has gotten into an altercation with some unidentified man. And it's Arian Foster that breaks it up. And that's why Danny and Steve go to talk to Arian Foster is so they can ascertain what he knows about this altercation. And he gives them a little bit of information, just enough for them to go off. And Danny embarrasses the hell out of himself. And... They figure out who this guy is, and he turns out to be a former military guy who's really good at acquiring information. So what we have here is him using Holly for industrial espionage, basically, and then Holly kind of double-crossing him when she finds out that Davis has been murdered because she thinks Cross did it, but Cross swears he didn't do it, and he says he has an alibi which does pan out. So even though 5 now knows the plan, they're still in the same position that they were in before. They need to find Holly to find the killer. And I'm not going to spoil the episode because I do think you should give this one a watch because it is kind of fun. Like I said, Nikki the Kid is the greatest. But just a few notes about the director and writers of this episode. So the director is Jeffrey G. Hunt. He directed a total of six episodes of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O. He also directed 18 episodes of CSI, as well as having 115 camera operator credits for the series. He also directed seven episodes of CSI New York, as well as episodes of Dwight in Shining Armor, Legacies, Burn Notice, and the 2008 Knight Rider reboot. And he also has directing credits for the movies Satanic and Saving Zoe. Writer Kyle Harimoto, I talked about him before because he was a writer of the episode Leakyo, which I covered in season two. And his co-writer, David Wolkoff, he has writing credits for 51 episodes of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O, as well as producer credits for 126 episodes. He also has writing and producing credits for the 2018 Magnum P.I. So this is a fun standalone episode that doesn't have any connection to the original series. But I mean, if you want to find out if Danny ever meets Peyton Manning, you're going to have to give it a watch. Yeah, what gives? Why did you have to sit so close to the feet? Yeah. That's none of your bit. Okay. Tell him why. Okay, because Peyton Manning is playing, okay, and I'd like a chance to meet him. is episode 37 of Bookum Dano. I think both of these episodes are fun. I think, obviously, The Bomber and Mrs. Maroney has a hell of a lot more tension involved in it than Pa'ani does, but they're both a good time. And even if you have no interest in the 2010 reboot, you should still give Pa'ani a watch just for the introduction of Nikki the Kid DeMarco. He is amazing. I cherish that character so much. And as always, thank you for listening. I always appreciate your ears. 
As I said, we're almost done with season three. One more episode. So I appreciate you coming along for this ride. If you want to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want to experience me extolling the virtues of Nikki the Kid DeMarco in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So don't mess with any old ladies and pick your football teams carefully. Until next time, aloha.